0: The first few chapters of Genesis are always eye-opening, and I'd like to tell you that they get less eye-opening as you go along, but the truth is that the story is uh, the story. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it doesn't sugarcoat God's people. They're real. They're, they're, uh, They're believable stories, even though they may seem outlandish, and it's kind of crazy to think that these are the people that God chose to move forward. But Alan and I were having a discussion today in the office, and something I said a couple of weeks ago is that God fiercely protects his people, that line of people, in spite of what they do. And so you see, his plan keeps moving forward. It keeps going in spite of the poor decisions that the people that he chooses makes. Let me give you just a couple of logistical things here. Um, We're going to operate the same way we've been operating But I'm going to do more repeating. I've had that request from a couple of you. Uh, There are two solutions to when you have a large group, getting everybody to hear each other. And that is, one, everybody moves closer together, down front, center. Uh, And two is I repeat everything. So I'll be repeating everything because otherwise you're not going to hear. All right? And so I try to do that in the way I answer the question, but I haven't been clear enough in that. So we'll we'll kind of do that in even this first part. The second question is there have been some that have asked, well, what if I miss a week? Or I'm teaching and I can't be there. Starting tonight, we're going to try to record this session, and we'll probably put it up with our podcast where we put our sermons and uh, those kind of things so people can get online and download it or listen to it or whatever and uh, try to edit it around so that there's not a lot of dead space. And so our whole conversation may take 30 or 45 minutes instead of the hour. But uh, I've had a couple people request uh, that can't be here because they're teaching. They'd like to know what we're talking about. So somebody tell me, uh, in the Old Testament reading this week, we went, uh, continued kind of the, the story of Abraham's family and moved all the way through from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob on to Joseph, and we got in the middle of the Joseph story. We're not through with the Joseph story, but tell me just in that, that those passages, something that, that kind of stuck out to you or something that you noticed, maybe had noticed before or something that touched your heart or challenged you, something like that. That's good. Somebody else. Joseph was the only good guy. That's what Joyce said. Uh, it's kind of like a breath of fresh air when you get to Joseph, right? Like, wow, he made the right decision. It's, that is really good. You know, when you, he gets tempted and he, he runs away, even though he didn't, he gets accused of it and gets charged with it. Uh, in the prison, you know, he, he does the right thing. Joseph is a breath of fresh air. Uh, and so... Uh, that, that's that's a good point, especially when you've been dealing with other things. Miss Betty, we'll get there. We'll get to questions in a minute. But that's an important passage. Uh, but one reason that's very important is where the name of God's people get their name, right? Israel? He gets his name changed to Israel. But we'll talk about that. Something else, something that stood out to you in the Old Testament reading, surprised you, challenged you, any of that. <laughs> one second, Miss John. We'll, let me get Ann, and then we'll... You have in Jacob and Laban, one of the things you see is that they're much more alike than they want to admit, right? I mean, Jacob, it's almost, it's interesting because you have this kind of reversal thing. Um, you have, from what we read last week, you had Jacob tricking Esau and then getting tricked by Laban, and then Jacob returning the favor on Laban, and Laban getting Jacob, you know, they're back and forth, and you almost get the feeling that they're not really, they don't really care what the outcome is, they just want to one up. The other one, right? We were in Genesis thirty through forty-two, basically, this week. So, but yeah, the the Laban story is interesting, where Jacob tries to sneak away. Yeah, it, that's one thing that the Bible never gives clear understanding of the idols that Rachel took. What happens there? You know, in other places in Scripture, you know, I think of the battle of AI that we'll we'll encounter in the Book of Joshua. Uh, that'll be sometime around the, it'll be sometime around April. Will be in Joshua. Um, you think about that, where uh, God's people got destroyed, basically, or the army that went out because there were some foreign idols kept there. Now there is that point uh, not long after that, where all the idols are destroyed. Where it talks about how that, that 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 they committed themselves afresh to God, and so there are some scholars that think that well then Rachel got rid of them there, um, or they got rid of them at that point. So. Um, one of the things that was interesting to me is Rachel's death. And they just, you know, I mean, you read through that, they just kind of buried her. I mean, and, and you think, well, for us that seems a little cruel, but what what else are you going to do? I mean, you know, I mean, you're traveling, you're going, you're not going to, you know, carry her around. And so, but it's it's interesting there. Other parts of that story you found interesting before we get to questions? Yeah, it's interesting. Their negotiations with each other on a lot of levels are just fascinating because we don't do things like that anymore. Let me ask you this question. Who carries the action a lot in this section, the males or the females? Females, right? Another discussion I had today, uh, it almost seems like the guys are just kind of sitting back and, all right, whatever. You know, I mean, you have that whole section where Rachel and Leah are, are getting back at each other, you know, and one has the babies for a while and the other has the babies. And then, I, don't, he, I guess he gets tired. None of them are having babies. And Leah goes out to get the mandrakes. Uh, and I know for us, going to get the mandrakes isn't a big deal, but in their culture, mandrakes were equated with fertility. They thought if you ate the mandrakes, you had the babies. It's a fruit kind of thing. Uh, I mean, it's it's not something that we have around here. It's something more in the Middle East. But they thought that if you ate mandrakes, it was an aphrodisiac and a fertility enhancer. And so when she's going out to pick mandrakes, that's a symbolic story. It, for us, it doesn't carry that symbolism. It's just, I mean, it's fruit, so what, you know? Go pick some more fruit. But it wasn't that. It was that kind of thing. And uh, One commentator said about that little incident that what you see over and over again is that God's people are bargaining with things that should never be bargained with? Think about the birthright. You think about uh, the blessing, even Jacob and Esau. You think about now Rachel and Leah with the mandrakes. Um, it's just an interesting dynamic. Um, you really see a lot of sibling rivalry here. Uh, I mean, Rachel and Leah are not just co wives, they're Sisters, and you see this jealousy playing out, and to the point where, you know, they're neither one are are having children like they would like, and so they start. Well, I've got this servant, and so they start giving their servant, and it's just an interesting thing to see how jealousy works its way around. Anything else, real quickly, before we go to questions? All right, let's go to questions, and I'll start with Miss Betty's question about Jacob wrestling with God alright somebody tell me what you think there who did he wrestle with I see lots of mouths moving and no words coming out (laughs) who did he wrestle with somebody says God I mean that's what the title says wrestling with God angel of God it's interesting in the Hebrew they use two words one is is kind of that's not how you exactly say it but which means man and then another one talks about the word that they use for uh, God, but it can also be used of angels. Here's what I think needs to be understood about that passage. Anybody, can anybody look through that? I'm sure you probably didn't do the math. Somebody may have. How old he would have been when he wrestled here? Let me give you a round number. In his late 90s. Okay. This really, you know, sometimes people read this and think of it as a, an intense physical struggle. I don't think that's what's happening here. This is one of those instances when I think the spiritual battle is going on, and I think what is happening. Now, I say the word I think because this is one of those most disputed passages in Scripture, what's happening here. I think what is happening is there's a real battle of the wills going on between who would become Israel and God. And for all of this time, Jacob has been doing his own thing, his own way. Trying to get one up, trying to do all these things. And God is finally going to say, I'm not going to let you do that anymore. Now here's the interesting thing. Victory comes when, in a sense, the man submits. And so it's an interesting thing. It's not that he necessarily just by brute force overpowers him it's that when the submission comes to the idea or the plan or whatever to the blessing and the guy and the angel in pre-incarnate christ is another idea it, when that figure says i'm not going to give the blessing if you you know we don't wrestle and he he kind of relents and submits to the blessing that's when victory comes now what's also interesting is similar to paul In the New Testament, who said he had a thorn in the flesh that kept him from being proud, Israel now is given some kind of deformity where that he will never forget that incident. What's interesting there is that you have this spiritual conflict going on, this spiritual battle of wills, and in the midst of it, There's a physical reminder for the person. And it just reminds us. And I think this was kind of a moment when God says, all right, it's time for me to impose my will, if you will, Alan, to make this move forward better. And so he just gets this discussion going. Verse 30, it makes it clear that he thinks he wrestled with God. That's chapter 32. He says, Jacob called the pineal because it is I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared here's the thing you get Jacob when you read it it almost seems like he comes out the victor but yet he doesn't come out proud does that make sense we've watched even if you're not a fan enough boxing or one on one combat matches to see that when guys win today they come out thumping their chest raising their hands You can see it on the national television thing, or you can come here on Monday nights when we got a group of guys that play basketball, right, Cliff? And if somebody puts a shot in somebody's face, there's a little bit of, yeah, look at what I did there. And you don't see that with Jacob. There's a humility there. Does that answer your question, Miss Betty? Okay. You have a follow up question? Okay. Other questions from this? Section in Genesis. Yes, Miss Teresa. Dinah. Yeah. Let me. Miss Teresa is asking about chapter thirty-four, with Dinah and the Shechemites. Um, it's a. It's a culture of protecting. The ladies. I mean, we have some chivalry here. I wouldn't call this chivalry necessarily. I think there are two fronts here. I think one, it was really some guys protecting their sister. At the same time, I think it goes back to what we talked about. This is God, through his people, fiercely protecting his line. Not allowing other things to come in. What's interesting is the word that is used there, and I was trying to think, did a... In verse 2, I don't have my New Living translation here. So those of you that read out of the New Living, uh, in verse 2 of chapter 34, what is the word that it used there? It says, When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and... Is it violated? Raped. Okay? That word there is an interesting word in the original language because it can mean rape. It can mean take advantage of. It can also mean an act that is consensual but nonetheless is inappropriate. So later it will talk about ladies who were consensual but they were doing something outside of what should be done. So it's either way for these brothers it was inappropriate. Now, you know, this is just one of those places that the Bible probably shares more than if we were the editors of the Bible we would say you know what, they don't need to put all of that in there about their plan and what they did and all of that. They just, you know, don't do that. But I do think it shows that, first of all, I think it shows that brutality was very real in that time. I think in any society that's trying to develop itself, brutality is very real. I think what's going to be the horror coming out of Haiti in the days and the weeks and months ahead is that people are going to return to a savage lifestyle of trying to get things on their own. And we've got cameras down there recording it. Um, and so that is real. And I do think it was this this idea that these brothers just felt it was their obligation to protect the family and this girl. And they weren't going to give any of their stuff to them. They weren't going to give any of their land to them. They were just going to be them. I don't know that, that answers your question, Miss Teresa. Yeah. And that's a question. This, this brutality is a question that we'll deal with as we go through, especially when you get to, uh, you get into Joshua, and God tells them, "Don't leave man, woman, or child alive. Kill them all." They learn from their dad. Yeah, there's that trickery, deception going on in that passage. They learn from their dads, and and uh, the old saying, "The apple doesn't fall far from the tree." Uh, it was a good strategy it worked I mean that's kind of the idea of the strategy it makes us all cringe as we read it but it, it works other questions from these these passages in Genesis you know we did read about a female that is mentioned in the line of Christ right remember there are only about four or five females mentioned in the line of Christ We read about one of them this week. Who was that? Tamar, right? She's not one you would immediately think would be needed to be listed in the line of Christ. Her most famous act is deceptively seducing her father-in-law. But again, let me ask this question. Why was she doing that yet? for protection of that family line. This people of God, or that line is being protected, and that's why here's the interesting thing, when all is revealed, who is held up as the hero in the story? Tamar is. Judah says, I should have he was she was more concerned about doing what was right than I was. Right? Let's look at that. He is. Yeah, that's right. Later it does. Uh Verse 26 of chapter 38. Now, let's remember the story here. She tricks Judah. She dresses like a prostitute, tricks him. She gets pregnant. He finds out that she's pregnant, and he says, bring her out and have her burned to death. And then she comes out, tricking him, and says, whoever the father is has these things. And after his jaw quits dropping to the ground, he says in verse 26, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shalah. Now why wouldn't he give her her son? The other two had died, and he thought if I give, you know, he thought of her as kind of a black widow figure, I guess. You've heard that term. Uh, yeah, that he'd die too. And then the line is done. It's interesting that where that story is placed as well. Because if you do the math on that, The math doesn't fit for it to fit right there. Because you've got Joseph and his brothers and all that story, but this is Judah and Judah's sons that are of marrying age. So you've got some considerable time that has passed. And so to put it right where it is is kind of a strange, it's one of those questions scholars don't have a good answer for. A couple more minutes of questions on this, on the Genesis passage. Anything else? One of the ways that, one of the obligations in their time was to make sure a male heir came. And so when that first son dies, no male heir. But according to them, the first husband's wife or the first son's wife is the one that will produce the male heir. That's why they had that that system of if he died, then the next brother And you see ramifications of this in the New Testament, right? Because when Jesus is talking about questions, one of them comes up and says, what if one man marries a woman and he dies, and then the brother, and then the brother, and then the brother, 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 when they get to heaven, who's going to be the husband? And Jesus said, there's no marriage in heaven. We'll talk about that when we get there, all right? So it was the next person's line. Now, one of the reasons that the, the second brother in one of those very descriptive passages in Scripture did not want to have children it's because it would not be his son and it would be considered his son it would be considered his brother's son and if they didn't have a son by this wife he would get the full birthright but if the son was born it wouldn't be his son it would be his brother's son and his brother's son would get the full birthright just the way they worked and so the thing is, the reason that it was important that she was righteous because she was trying to protect that family line, as God had laid it out. That this is the family that everything will flow through, and there'll be, you know, and you have in these twelve, you have the twelve brothers, you have the twelve tribes of Israel, and so it's important to keep those lines. And each tribe would carry specific function. And so they had to continue in that line. In fact, you know, we mentioned Judah, but by the time we get to the King King David, uh, he unites these two, but after David they separate, and the more righteous of the two is Judah, that tribe that settles. It becomes the largest, most prevalent. Here's the moral of Genesis. The Old Testament, the New Testament, excluding Jesus. God hits straight licks with crooked sticks. There are no heroes here. Jacob is messing up all over the place, and yet God still uses him in a mighty way. For us, that's an encouraging thing. And, you know, there are days that I think, Lord, there is no way in the world I ought to be doing what I'm doing. I can't do it. And yet it's through his faithfulness that he continues to use us. And you go back and you read somebody like Jacob, you go, I ain't messed up like he was. You know? He can use him. He can, you know, he can use me. And this is one of the guys that, I mean, in years to come, people would say, my God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God hits straight licks with crooked sticks. That really comes via a guy named George Guthrie, who was my professor at Union. All right? Anything else? Because we're about to go to the New Testament. Anything else? All right, let's go to the New Testament. In the New Testament, we're in Matthew 10 through 13, basically. Not the last part of 13, but Matthew 10 through 13. Things that kind of stood out to you. in that something that stood out to you in those passages. Yeah, chapter 12, Joyce mentioned in chapter 12, verse 38 and falling, where they say, show us a sign, and he says, you're wicked. You know, I could show you a sign, but it's not really helpful, so this is the sign I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. I'm going to be in the belly of the earth for three days, and then I'll be out. I can just, you know, one of the things that I've always thought about is I can imagine the disciples sitting around after Jesus ascended, and they had these quiet moments a little bit together, the book of Acts, and they're sitting around, and they go, hey, didn't Jesus talk about Jonah one time? you remember that? We completely missed what he was talking about. Because I don't think when he says that, that like, was, exactly. He's going to die, and he's going to rise again. They didn't know what he was talking about. But later, when it comes to pass, they go, oh, that's what it is gives me encouragement because there are times in my life when I have no idea what God is doing. And yet, a year later, I say, I see it. I see what he did back then. But that's a good part. Other things, other, maybe something that you didn't remember being quite controversial that was controversial or uh, one of the parables that kind of stuck out to you or talked to you or that. Yeah. yeah, John. Yeah, we're not in questions yet, John. We're not going to get to that question tonight. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Here, I'll, I'll say. John's asking about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Um, my personal understanding of that is somebody that rejects the promptings of the Holy Spirit in their life to accept what God has done for them. Uh, blasphemy the Holy Spirit there, I think, literally means rejecting the Holy Spirit's conviction of your life. And that if you do that for your life, that eventually you will not be forgiven. Okay? That's my understanding of that passage. I don't think that means, and I don't think Jesus says anywhere in there, that if you're saved and then you say a curse against the Holy Spirit, that somehow you lose your salvation and it's over. Right? I don't think that's what it means. I do think it means that when you reject His Spirit convicting you for salvation, then that's what it means. Does that answer it okay? All right, other things that you point out are questions. We can do questions, either one. That's an interesting little passage because he says, don't go anywhere but to the lost sheep of Israel, right? And if you turn on, I can almost guarantee you, could turn on, on particular broadcasting stations. Some may be centered in Hendersonville. Uh, this week on your cable or your satellite and others of like kind that you will find some preacher talking about what we must do for the lost sheep of Israel before Jesus will come back because Jesus said to go after the lost sheep of Israel. I'm not denying that Israel doesn't have a place in God's ultimate plan. But that's not what this passage is about. This passage, I think, is based on the principle that will come later in Acts 1 8, which is go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus, what's the context here? What's happening in chapter 10? He's sending them out. Their first mission trip, their first ministry. Jesus has kind of got his apostles around. He says, Listen, I've been doing all the work for you here. It's time for you to get to work. And so I'm going to send you out with an easy assignment first. Just to go to the Israelites. Don't worry about going to the Gentiles yet. Don't worry about trying to cross cultures. Just to go to the Israelites. It's kind of like you give them a little bit of that, and they're supposed to come back. And when they come back, you go, okay, now let's up the ante a little bit. Let's let's move into a different realm. And so Jesus is saying, for your first test, just go to the Israelites, tell them what you've seen and what's happening, and then we'll begin to go from there. Now, what he's going to find is the lost sheep of Israel, basically, Charles, to answer your question, the lost sheep of Israel are those people that aren't following him. I mean, that's anybody that doesn't quite have his message. It'd be the same thing for us today if we talk about the lost. What do we mean by the lost? We mean people that don't have a relationship with Jesus. Now, you have to understand this is pre-crucifixion, pre-resurrection, so having a relationship with Jesus is not exactly what's meant there, but understanding God's plan as it was being fulfilled through Jesus. People that didn't understand that were the lost sheep of Israel, which is... Most of them. I, 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 do, I don't know that that's what Jesus meant. But I think that another parable he tells tells us that. The wheat and the tares, right? He, They plant. And then he says at the end everyone will know. And I think it ought to put shivers in our hearts to think that on Sunday morning there are wheat and tares in these pews. And I think to think otherwise would be naive. To think that everybody that is in the pews on Sunday morning, that are even members of this church, to think that every one of them are saved would be naive. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to be shocked who's there. And we're going to be shocked who's not. And I think that he tells that story, I mean, he pretty vividly, right? I mean he tells the the parable of the let's get over there. Where is it? Parable of the weeds chapter 13 verse 24 now here's what I here's another thing as we're talking about spiritual warfare on sunday mornings and by the way i did tell you that when we started preaching about spiritual warfare stuff would happen didn't I like a preacher get 102.8 fever on Friday night but i think he 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 couches this in terms of spiritual warfare you may have never read that parable in the ways of spiritual warfare but in chapter 20 chapter 13 verse 24 he says the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed, the weeds also appeared. The owner said, Sir, didn't you show good seed? The enemy did this. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go ahead and pull them up? He said, No. Because while you're pulling the weeds, you may root up. Let them both grow up together. And at the time, I will tell the harvester, first collect the weeds. Now, the implication there, first of all, is that you could tell the difference. And I think you can tell the difference if we look closely enough between the weeds and the good. I think that's the fruit inspection thing we talked about a little bit. But it takes a trained eye to do that. And you've got to be sensitive. And so that's why I don't get up on Sunday morning and say, you know, I really just don't think brother so-and-so is saved. Can you come up here and let's talk about that? Right? First of all, it's insensitive. But the truth is, and let me just ask you this question, if we knew that was the case, is it more insensitive to do that or to just let him go? This That parable is one that every time I read it, I shiver. Because I am confident that I'm going to get to heaven. And I'm going to be sitting there. And I don't think when I get to heaven they're going to have me a roll sheet from all you know, from all of y'all. Here you go, Pastor. You're a pastor of First Baptist Goodlitzville. Here you check them off as they come in, all right? I don't think that's going to happen. That'll be Deborah's job, not my job, right? But I think I'm going to get to heaven. And there are going to be church members that I don't see. And it scares me. Because I, I'm called to pastor the people of this congregation and the communities that surround it. And so that, that's just one just personal uh, kind of confession to you. That one always makes me shake a little bit. Other stuff? We can? All the way to Genesis? Are you going back to Genesis? Mark? Right. Right. And this is, this is what John asked a few minutes ago about verse 32, the Holy Spirit speaking against the Holy Spirit, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. My understanding of that is not necessarily speaking a curse against the Holy Spirit, saying, I curse, and then using the name of the Holy Spirit. My understanding of that is that it's someone who rejects the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings into your life that makes you want to accept Christ. We're chapter twelve, verse thirty and following there. Here's what here's what he, you know, they are beginning to basically and I here's the here's the truthful part of that. That's one of those questions I can't fully answer. Okay? Here's my understanding of what's going on in that passage. They've just said to him that he drives out demons by the power of Satan. So, in essence, if Jesus took that to heart, they have just blasphemed Jesus. Because they have said that God is Satan. And Jesus says, how can that be? A house divided against itself cannot fall. Most people think Abraham Lincoln said that. Right? It's not Abraham Lincoln. It's Jesus. And Jesus is talking about it, about the devil. Not not about a church, y'all. We can't. A house divided against itself cannot stand. No, he's talking about how can I cast out demons and be the devil? you got to be stronger than the one that's holding the keys. He gives this illustration, this strange illustration of, uh, you know, you got to be strong enough to walk in and tie the guy up and then take everything in this house. And then he kind of just says for a minute, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather scatters. So I tell you, Every sin and blasphemy will be given men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be, either in this age or the age to come. I just think reading that, what he's saying is, you can reject what's happening right now. This, this whole deal I'm doing right now, this physical stuff, you can reject what's happening with me on this earth right now. But there's coming a time soon when my death, Burial and resurrection will happen, and if you reject what happens there, you're done. Okay? That that's where I now if you read four commentaries, you'll get four different guys. But that's where I am. Mr. Robert. Well, here's the thing he ain't got any chance unless he accepts forgiveness in Jesus Christ. But if he does that, he's on the same ground we all are. Yeah. Well, if you don't have evidence that that he ever accepted that forgiveness, then you know he's spending eternity separated. But at the same time, guy that you've worked with all your life, that's a good old boy, never said anything bad about the scriptures, but he's never accepted Jesus. He's in the same boat. I think I think if he if he did not make peace with God, he's separated for eternity from him. Here's the thing: there's two different kinds of blessings being referenced there. In the Old Testament, we talked about last week that was the uh, generational, one-time family blessing. Okay, this is just um, in the same way that Jesus says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit." It, it, it's a to be congratulated or um, to say you've done a good deed. Uh, it's kind of like an award. It, it's more than that, but it's not as um, powerful, if you will, as what the Old Testament blessing was. This is just more of, you know, let them know they've done a good deed. Ask the Lord to bless that house. You've got the power now, if they treat you kindly, because you're one of my followers, that you can ask on the on the Lord's behalf to do something for that that house. That's the difference. It's a good question, Bill, especially in light of what we talked about last week. And it's also a reason that I like reading like we're reading. Because if we had read just from Genesis all the way to Matthew, by the time we got to Matthew, we wouldn't have... Thought a second thing about the blessing and 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 Jacob and Esau's story.